1: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of physical assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At 4.30 a.m. on February 17, 1901 men slowly gathered on the east side of the state capitol building in Topeka, Kansas. They all wore a white handkerchief tied around their neck. These uniform flashes of white bound them together. It made them look like an army, and that was exactly what they were. They called themselves the Home Defenders. Their mission? To protect the citizens of Kansas from the evils of alcohol. By 6 a.m., there were 500 home defenders in front of the Capitol building. More alarming, all of them carried weapons, hatchets, clubs, revolvers, even a huge battering ram. And yet, despite their formidable ammunitions and their great number, all 500 men seemed to be waiting for something. At 6.30 a.m., it arrived. Or rather, she arrived. In her customary black frock with a white ribbon pinned to her lapel, Commander Carrie Nation made her way to the front of the throng. There was an anticipatory hush, and then Carrie signaled the horde, and all the men began to march. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes, but what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Carrie Nation. Last week, we discussed Carrie's early life, the death of her first husband from alcoholism, and her introduction to the temperance movement. This week, we'll follow Carrie as she travels across the Midwest, destroying saloons. Then, we'll detail how her spirited acts of vigilantism turned her into a global celebrity. Finally, we'll explore Carrie's lasting legacy on America. By April of 1900... Fifty-four-year-old Carrie Nation was a wife, grandmother, and a temperance activist vigilante. Abhorring the destructive nature of alcohol, Carrie made it her mission to end the distribution and consumption of liquor in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. To that end, she started a local chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and shut down an alcohol-distributing pharmacy. However... After O.L. Day's pharmacy closed, not much else changed in Kansas. Saloons still flourished all across the state, and liquor still flowed smoothly down the gullets of the willing with impunity. And Carrie was furious. So at a meeting of the WCTU, she made her feelings known. The meeting was initially called to celebrate the 20-year anniversary of the Prohibition Amendment in Kansas, but Kerry saw nothing to celebrate. The passage of Kansas's liquor ban was meaningless if the state refused to uphold it. And according to Fran Grace's biography, Carrie A Nation, elected officials turned the other way when illegal saloons were brought to their attention. Furthermore, should citizens take their complaints to court, the state made it nearly impossible to prosecute offending saloons. They required a comically high threshold of evidence to press charges. Lastly, in the rare occasions saloons were shut down, the state almost exclusively targeted black establishments, ignoring the far more numerous white liquor joints. All of this was on Carrie Nation's mind as she took the podium at the April WCTU meeting. Then she castigated the group. Their measured tactic of moral persuasion wasn't working. They'd tried to appeal to government officials, singing hymns in bars and preaching on the street corners to no avail. She continued by saying, The saloon man loves moral persuasion. If a snake came into your house to kill your boy, you would not use moral persuasion. You would look for a poker. When asked what she would propose as their poker, Carrie suggested agitation. If they were going to obliterate the devil's brew from their state, they had to get radical, And yet, despite Carrie's incendiary words, she didn't have the funds or the freedom to travel around the state confronting saloon owners head on. Her husband, David Nation, had insisted she leave her profitable hotels behind to follow his career. Her sacrifice meant she was back to being wholly dependent on David for support, and he certainly wasn't going to fund her activism efforts. So to gain back her financial independence, Carrie became an osteopath. Osteopathy was a field of medicine that used massage and muscle manipulation to heal the human body. Since it didn't require technical science, female practitioners were welcome. Carrie was drawn to this field for three reasons. First, her previous baptism by the Holy Ghost made her preternaturally attuned with the human body— Second, when she was young, she learned several alternative healing techniques from her family's slaves, so she was comfortable with intuition-driven healing. Lastly, and most importantly, female osteopaths were able to make a really good living. Author Fran Grace explained that, on average, osteopaths made around $400 a month, or about $12,000 a month today. It's unclear exactly how much Carrie was able to earn as an osteopath, but we know that she was successful at it. Her friends speculated that she would have been able to retire after only five years of practicing. However, Carrie had no intention of retiring. After gaining the financial freedom she sought from osteopathy, she set about pursuing her true passion, temperance activism. But even though 54-year-old Carrie Nation was determined to do something about Kansas's liquor problem, she had no idea where to actually start. So she turned to God, like she'd done so many times in the past. First, Carrie prostrated herself at the foot of her bed. Then she clasped her hands together and prayed her heart sincere, she begged God to use her in any way he saw fit so that she could suppress the dreadful curse of liquor in Kansas. The next morning, when Carrie woke, she claimed to have heard a whisper in her ear, every syllable distinct, as God said to her, Go to Kiowa. Though we can't say for sure what, if anything, Carrie heard that morning in her room, her claims of hearing God's voice telling her what to do aren't novel. Before we continue with Carrie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Fran Grace's biography, Carrie Nation wasn't the first Victorian-era woman to supposedly hear the voice of God. Grace explained... This was a common way for women to justify actions that would have been culturally offensive to a society bent on keeping them confined to specific roles. Women intimidated by this cultural bias seemed to believe that their inner voice was not powerful enough unless it could be perceived as part of a divine design. In this way, perhaps Carrie convinced herself that she did hear God's voice as a means to legitimize her own instinctive desires. Whatever the reason, Carrie soon put her God-ordained plans into action. On June 6, 1900, Carrie told her husband, David Nation, that she was going to the Springer Farm to visit her friend, Kate, David was used to her traveling miles at a time to visit osteopath clients, so he didn't question her further. But Carrie was lying. Certain she was carrying out the will of God, she lied to her husband, loaded up her buggy, and climbed inside. Then Carrie set off. Her destination? Kiowa. The journey was punishing, From Carrie's account, she faced off against the devils, demons, and goblins as they descended upon her, determined that one of God's chosen should not pass. But Carrie was the mother warrior, battling the evils of the world so that she might cleanse it for her children. She was Deborah from the Book of Judges, helping to lead an attack against a fiendish army. She was Moses her path acting for others as a light in the darkness. At least that's how Carrie described her journey in her autobiography. But since there's yet to be evidence of the existence of goblins or demons, we can only surmise that Carrie allowed herself some artistic license in depicting her travels. More likely than not, her journey to Kiowa was uneventful, if hellishly hot. Fifty-four-year-old Carrie arrived in Kiowa at 8.30 p.m. on June 6, 1900. After spending the night in a friend's home, she woke up the next morning ready to get to work. She was going to smash every bottle she found in Kiowa until the streets stank with liquor. Her first stop? A bar owned by John Dobson. Carrie targeted Dobson for two reasons— First, he was the brother of the Medicine Lodge sheriff, Jim Dobson, who she had clashed with several times in the course of her temperance activism. Second, Carrie had visited Kiowa five months prior and warned Dobson to shutter his bar. Since it was still open, she considered it fair game. According to Fran Grace, Carrie walked into Dobson's bar and immediately started putting to use the brick bats she'd brought from home. She flung them at mirrors, bar tops, bottles, and windows, sometimes barely missing the barkeeper, who was standing helplessly by, afraid to look, yet afraid to leave. After leaving Dobson's destroyed establishment, Carrie smashed up three to six more saloons. She later wrote in her autobiography that the destruction she wrought made her feel invincible and like a giant. Furthermore, Carrie felt zero guilt for her actions. After all, hadn't Jesus Christ destroyed the wares of the merchants who tried to do business in a place of worship? She saw no difference between that and her self-proclaimed smashings. As far as Carrie was concerned, she was doing God's work. On arriving at the scene of her godly exertions, the sheriff of Kiowa was at a loss. Carrie had done thousands of dollars worth of damage, and yet he couldn't arrest her. He wasn't even sure if she had broken the law. After all, in Kansas, liquor serving establishments were illegal. Was it a crime then to do damage to the illegal? More concerning, the sheriff knew that if he arrested Carrie, he would draw attention to his complicity in allowing the saloons to remain open in the first place. With that nightmare to contend with, he opted to let Carrie walk free. On being released, Carrie clambered back onto her buggy. Then she rode through the streets victorious. And despite having just destroyed thousands of dollars worth of property, Carrie Nation declared at the top of her lungs, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Up next, Carrie takes her smashing crusade to Wichita.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
1: 54-year-old Carrie Nation had gotten away with destroying saloons in Kiowa, Kansas, without suffering any consequences. Naturally, she was encouraged. The Kiowa experience seemed to suggest that she could do whatever she wanted in her temperance crusade. With that lesson in mind, Carrie immediately began searching for her next target. She'd outgrown Kiowa. She needed a bigger stage on which to perform. So she decided to take the Carrie Nation Smashing Show to Wichita, Kansas. At 7 o'clock on December 27th, Carrie Nation rode into town. After dropping off her bags at a local hotel, she began staking out the city, visiting 14 saloons in all. As Carrie strode from one liquor joint to the next, she was searching for something in particular. A bigger stage called for a mightier performance. If she wanted to make an entrance, she would need to pick the perfect setting. Then she walked into the Carrie Hotel Bar. Its shelves were adorned with expensive artifacts from all over the world, its walls festooned with sparkling Venetian mirrors. But the sight Carrie found the most offensive was the painting of a naked Cleopatra mounted behind the bar's counter. On taking in Cleopatra's pornographic curves, Carrie knew she'd found her stage. So at 8 a.m. the next morning, she marched back into the hotel bar. Then Carrie cleared her throat and called out, Men of Wichita! This is the right arm of God, and it is destined to wreck every saloon in your city. The male patrons just stared at her, confused. Carrie limbered up her throwing arm. Bang, she hurled a rock at the $300 painting of the naked Cleopatra. Smash, she whipped stones at the $1,500 Venetian mirrors. Then, as the stunned patrons watched, the 55-year-old woman picked up the heavy cash register and threw it to the ground. By the time Carrie was done with the gilded hotel bar, it was a wreck, completely unrecognizable from its former glory just 30 minutes prior. In the aftermath, Wichita chief of police George Cubin arrested her. As he perp-walked Carrie out the door, he warned her that she would be charged with malicious destruction of property. Carrie smiled. Then she quipped that if he changed the charge to destruction of malicious property, then she'd be happy to own up to that. Carrie's trial was set for January 5, 1901. In the interim, her exertions at the hotel bar made her an overnight local celebrity. Regional journalists filled their papers with her exploits. According to history professor Philip I. Mitterling, Carrie became the Kansas Cyclone, the woman in the chaste black frock who defied danger and welcomed punishment in order to smash. It's no surprise then that news of Carrie's crusade soon reached Kansas's WCTU board, According to Fran Grace, the powers that be at state were displeased with Carrie's conduct. Her actions were a little too raw, too unladylike, and they feared that she might bring negative attention to their esteemed organization. At the same time, they didn't feel that they could publicly disavow their newly notorious member. Their hands tied, the WCTU mounted Carrie's legal defense. Government officials in Wichita weren't so forgiving. Though the WCTU board secured a bond for her release, state authorities maneuvered to keep Carrie in jail. First, they placed a mentally ill man in the cell next to Carrie's, forcing her to listen to him rant and rave all night. Then Wichita authorities claimed that the man had smallpox, This lie allowed them to keep Carrie in jail for a three-week quarantine. While she was trapped, Sheriff Charles Simmons escalated his retribution. He distributed cigarettes to all the prisoners in nearby cells and encouraged them to light up. He knew that Carrie hated the so-called hell sticks, and he wanted her to choke under the veil of smoke. As though that wasn't punishment enough, Fran Grace explained that Sheriff Simmons also kept Carrie in solitary confinement in a basement cell for days at a time, leaving her to lie on a cement floor with wintry drafts blowing through. While the ranting man and cigarette smoke were uncomfortable, the random stints of solitary likely had the most damaging effect on Carrie's state of mind. According to research by psychiatrist Stuart Grassian... Solitary can cause hallucinations, panic attacks, diminished impulse control, hypersensitivity to external stimuli, and difficulties with thinking, concentration, and memory. According to Fran Grace, Carrie found solace in her faith while in solitary confinement. Her letters from prison were filled with references to God's enemies who were conspiring against her. These claims existed alongside assertions of confidence that God would deliver her from such evils soon. Due to the efforts of her lawyer husband, 55-year-old Carrie was released from jail on January 12, 1901. Staunch in her faith that she was doing God's work, she left jail determined to carry on in her crusade. On January 21st, a scant nine days after being released, Carrie was smashing up more saloons in Wichita. For her second smashing, Carrie utilized a hatchet for the first time. The weapon would go on to become her calling card. However, both bar patrons and government officials were prepared for Carrie's antics this time. She'd barely started swinging when she was swiftly arrested. Even worse, a mob of angry patrons tailed her to the Wichita jail, all of them yelling that Carrie Nation should be lynched. Fortunately, gleaning the bloodthirsty tenor of the crowd, on being locked up, Carrie began to sing through her jail cell window. She chose the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. Something about her mournful, melodious tone drained the ire from the mob, causing them to sullenly slink away. One would think that this terrifying run-in would end Carrie's crusade, but Carrie wasn't dissuaded at all. On the contrary, she realized that she was gaining more supporters every day. Fran Grace writes that during Carrie's second stint in the Wichita jail, she received a letter from concerned citizens in Enterprise, Kansas, begging her to help them save their homes by smashing the local saloons. Despite her near lynching, upon her release, Carrie immediately set out for the train station. Her destination? Enterprise, Kansas. Carrie met a far more welcoming reception in Enterprise, the minute she stepped off the train on January 23, 1901, she was greeted by a cheering crowd who immediately clamored for Carrie to speak. While it's unclear exactly what she said, Carrie likely revisited her greatest hits about the wickedness of the Devil's Brew and the righteousness of her hatchet crusade. Her speech acted as a call to arms. And by its end, the crowd was salivating to swing hatchets, hurl stones, and marvel at all the godly destruction that their hands had wrought. Carrie led them to John Schilling's saloon. The establishment was closed, but Carrie didn't let that deter her. The devil might not be tempting men to drink right now, but he'd be back at a moment's notice. With that rationalization squared away, Carrie Nation swung her hatchet and shattered the saloon's front window. Then she hoisted herself over and clambered inside, the crowd fast at her heels. Once within the walls of the saloon, Carrie had a rollicking time tearing the place apart. All the while, the crowd watched cheering her on and living vicariously through the 55-year-old woman's spirited smashings. In the aftermath, Carrie stood outside and preached to a crowd of onlookers about the godly nature of her destructive rampage. Unbeknownst to her, John Schilling, the owner of the bar she destroyed, had joined the crowd. After taking in what had been done to his saloon, his life's work... John was incensed. However, he knew that he could not hit a woman. Her crowd of rabid supporters wouldn't stand for it. Thus, his hands tied, John impotently snarled at Carrie, and that would have been the end of it, except for one little thing. John's wife, Belle, stood right next to him. She was equally furious, and unlike her husband, Belle could hit Carrie, so she strode up to the 55-year-old woman and punched her in the face. Carrie stumbled, startled, then she turned and retreated into a nearby butcher shop. She emerged with a slab of beef slapped over her swollen eye, and then continued railing against the evils of alcohol, undaunted. Humiliated, Belle and John walked away. However, the altercation between Carrie and his wife gave John an idea. The next day, when Carrie and her supporters were smashing up another Enterprise bar, John returned with backup. He was accompanied by four of Enterprise's most hardy female sex workers, all of them carrying whips and sticks. Determined, John's eyes scanned the crowd as he searched for Carrie— The minute he saw her, he stalked over. Then John grabbed Carrie and held her down. On seeing that their target was secured, the four sex workers in his employ began beating and whipping Carrie with gusto. According to Fran Grace's book, Carrie's supporters were so stunned by the attack that they stood by helplessly until Schilling's own mother demanded an end to the abuse. Once relinquished, a bruised and battered Carrie Nation boarded the train, eager to put Enterprise and John Schilling's brawling sex workers far behind her. However, though she was wounded, her spirits remained undaunted. Carrie had no idea that a greater backlash was yet to come. Up next... Carrie's critics attempt to paint her as insane. Now, back to the story. On January 24th, 1901, 55-year-old Carrie Nation rode a train out of Enterprise, Kansas. After being beat up by John Schilling's sex workers, Carrie was likely demoralized. However, there was one silver lining to her bad luck— News of Carrie Nation and her smashing exploits had gone national. In late January 1901, papers outside of the Midwest had finally caught wind of her story. The most impressive of these was the New York Times. They dedicated an entire column to Carrie's activities at the Carrie Hotel bar and beyond. As a result, Americans across the country learned about the hatchet-wielding grandma who destroyed saloons for sport. Their reaction to these articles broke down as follows. Some readers saw Carrie as a savior who would protect the country from immorality. Others branded her an unsexed menace, seeing her smashings as unnatural and unfeminine. However, neither sycophant nor critic could detract from the effect that Carrie's actions had on a certain kind of woman, one who was fed up with the ill effect alcohol had on their homes and on society. To these women, Carrie was an inspiration. According to Fran Grace, Carrie inspired copycats. Grace wrote that the angry wife of an alcoholic hatcheted a saloon in Auburn, Indiana, in LaSalle, Illinois, 15 wives of prominent citizens donned veils and laid waste to their town's saloons. Carrie's influence wasn't restricted to the United States either. In Paris, France, several women invaded a railway station and physically blocked electric tram lines from moving forward. They did this to protest the company's plan to serve alcohol on board. On learning about the effect her activities were having on other women, Carrie gave temperance speeches all over Kansas, in Quincy, Hope, and Ottawa. And then Carrie decided to head over to the state's capital, Topeka. Carrie arrived in Topeka, Kansas on January 26, 1901. Several thousand fans greeted her at the train station. They'd heard of Carrie's exploits and longed for her to bring the same saloon-smashing fervor to Topeka. Carrie had arrived just in time for the city's huge Temperance Union Convention. It was an event that would help her shore up even more support. However, there was someone else that eyed the significant platform provided by the convention with longing. Namely, David Nation. As his wife traveled around the country delivering incendiary speeches and busting up saloons, David Nation had remained back home in Medicine Lodge. There, he'd helped respond to Carrie's copious amounts of fan mail. Needless to say, his administrative duties paled in comparison to the fame enjoyed by his wife. And David was sick of it. So he traveled to Topeka two days after Carrie arrived. Sensing her husband's dissatisfaction, Carrie promised that he could speak at a pre-convention temperance meeting. While it wasn't the attention-grabbing convention slot he hoped for, David was placated by her concession. However, his appeasement was short-lived. While Carrie allowed David to start his speech at the pre-convention gathering as promised, she interrupted him shortly after he began, saying... Sit down, Papa. You've talked long enough. Carrie might have silenced David for one of two reasons. First, journalists who reported on the event called David's speech virtually interminable. So it's possible that Carrie, who loved an audience, muzzled her husband because she sensed that he was boring people. Secondly, according to Fran Grace, Carrie often needled David about his advanced age, regularly calling him Papa in front of others. So it's possible that her slight was just more of the same mean-spirited teasing. Whatever the reason, David stepped back from the podium, humiliated, While he'd been somewhat disturbed by his wife's turn to vigilante activism, now that it was clear he wouldn't benefit from her new success, he was actively against it. But Carrie was oblivious to her husband's newly darkened thoughts. After all, she was having the time of her life. The next day, January 29th, at the convention proper, David watched a huge gathering swell to its feet and wave handkerchiefs as they begged Carrie to assume the stage. Then he listened as his wife's speech won the crowd over entirely. David might have been confused about why his reception differed so much from his wife's. And while Carrie's manner of speaking, punctuated with quips and hearty amens, was likely much livelier than David's, Her verve wasn't the only reason for her success. The root of that was much darker. Fran Grace explained that Carrie often used very black and white language when describing the battle for Prohibition. The Drys, who hated liquor like Carrie, were good. They were doing God's work. By the same token, Carrie insisted that the wets, who salivated at the sight of the devil's brew, were bad. More than that, they were evil. This one dimensional portrayal of those who disagreed with her as evil was a form of dehumanization. This was the true source of Carrie's persuasiveness. According to philosophy professor Michelle Mays, once a leader dehumanizes the enemy, Framing a conflict as a battle between good and evil, zero-sum thinking develops, and new goals to punish or destroy the enemy can arise. And while Carrie never encouraged her adherents to attack drinkers, by dehumanizing the wets, she gave her followers divine permission to destroy their valuable property at a whim. That's why in Enterprise, No thought was given to John Schilling as Carey wiped out his life's work in a matter of minutes. No thought was given to any of the saloon owners. They were wets. Their enterprises were evil. Thus, smashing was God's work. By February, a couple days after Carey's speech, the Prohibitionist-minded citizens of Topeka were spoiling for a fight. According to Fran Grace, the women of the local WCTU had gathered all the town's pokers, hatchets, and crowbars so that they could destroy its saloons. However, women weren't the only ones invested in the temperance cause. There were several men in Topeka who also wanted to see alcohol prohibited. In the wake of the WCTU conference, they felt overshadowed. So they organized a men's smashing army. On February 10th, they issued a warning to Topeka's saloons, notifying them to close or risk suffering the consequences of their brute squad. Their threat was largely ignored. This humiliation made the men realize that they needed Carrie to be taken seriously. So on Valentine's Day, They joined forces with her and, together, crafted a plan of attack. On February 17, 1901, 55-year-old Carrie Nation led a crowd of 500 men through Topeka, Kansas. With their hatchets, clubs, and battering rams, they laid siege to the city's saloons. In the aftermath, though nobody was injured, they had caused thousands of dollars' worth of damage. Yet again, Carrie was arrested and thrown into jail. However, this time, she had mobilized an army and caused a greater scale of destruction than ever before. This gave her critics new ammunition. Something had to be done. And soon, both government officials and journalists alike alleged that Carrie Nation was insane. This was a particularly dangerous accusation when leveled against women. Fran Grace explained that at the end of the 19th century, male physicians warned that women's activities in the public sphere would make their bodies infertile and their minds demented. Domineering husbands sometimes used this diagnosis of gender deviance to punish wives who were economically independent or assertive about their positions. Furthermore, Carrie's own mother, Mary, had spent her final years in an asylum. She'd been branded insane and consigned to the institution by Carrie's brother, likely so he could avoid paying Mary the money that he owed her. For all these reasons, Carrie was likely terrified by the perilous consequences of being labeled insane. Fortunately, her supporters quickly came to her defense. They insisted that Carrie's passionate feelings about the proliferation of alcohol were proof of her sanity, as opposed to evidence of her madness. Their spirited defense meant that when Carrie was released from jail near the end of February, it was to a wave of continued support— However, while her fans celebrated her release, Carrie's own husband did not. On the contrary, David had had just about enough of her. On August 9, 1901, David Nation filed for divorce. According to Fran Grace, his petition alleged that she "...became unmindful of her duties as a housewife and assumed the role of boss." In addition, David accused Carrie of cruelty, stating that she "...subjected him to ridicule by continuing her public crusade, despite his pleadings that she desist." Carrie was devastated by the dissolution of her marriage. Her mother, Mary, had raised her to prioritize her home and her husband's happiness above all else. So when David filed for divorce, Carrie felt like she'd failed as a woman... This was doubly painful because Carrie's worst critics often challenged her femininity, accusing her of being unsexed and mannish. David's abandonment seemed to act as proof that those painful insults were true. However, despite her initial distress, the outcome of David's divorce petition helped to alleviate Carrie's despair. While the court did find her guilty of gross neglect in her duties as a housewife, they cleared her of the charge of cruelty. Furthermore, once stripped of her marriage to David Nation, Carrie realized that she was free. She didn't need a traditional home over which to labor. Instead, she could make the world her home. To that end, Carrie began accepting the multiple speaking invitations she received from admirers across the globe. During the course of her global tour, Carrie delivered speeches about the importance of temperance. She spoke everywhere from vaudeville theaters to the halls of esteemed universities like Harvard and Yale. Carrie was sometimes treated more like a sideshow than a respected guest at these engagements, but with her customary good humor, she let any mockery slide off her back. In addition, regardless of the intentions of her hosts, Carrie always made sure to collect the money owed to her. In 1903, the 57-year-old used these proceeds to purchase a house in Kansas City, Kansas for the wives and mothers of alcoholics. That same year, she also changed the spelling of her name from Carrie with an I-E to Carrie with a Y. According to women's studies professor Patricia Ashman, Carey believed the latter spelling indicated that she would carry a nation to prohibition. However, she would never see her dream come to fruition. In January of 1911, while lecturing about the evils of alcohol in Eureka Springs, Kansas, 65-year-old Carrie Nation collapsed on stage, Though she was rushed to the hospital, she died in June of paresis, a condition that causes partial paralysis. The 18th Amendment abolishing alcohol in the United States was ratified just eight years later in 1919. Had Carrie been alive, she would have certainly celebrated the occasion— By the same token, she likely would have responded to the consequent 1933 repeal of Prohibition by marching into bars, whipping out her hatchet, and wreaking havoc. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode— For more information on Carrie Nation, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Carrie A. Nation by Fran Grace, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream female criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type female criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Abiyageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.